Our Father, we have just sung of the wonder of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. The Son of God being crushed by God. Not because the Son of God deserved crushing, but because the Son of God willingly embraced being crushed so that we might be redeemed from our sin, bought from our sin, saved from Your wrath against our sin, empowered so that we might live apart from our sin. This is, this is the One who died for us. And He duly receives our awe, our worship, our praise. As does the entire triune Godhead. We do not worship the Son to the exclusion of the Father or the Spirit. But it is of the entire triune Godhead that we say, To You alone be the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. There is none other that deserves glory but You. You alone are exalted in the heavens and You alone are great. You alone are sovereign. You alone are holy. You alone are wise. Everything we need is found in You. So we come to You. We come to You in song. We come to You in prayer and dependence. And we come to Your Word And because we need transformation from that Word and by that Word. And so, Father, as we open a book that may be a little less familiar to many of us this morning, would You begin this process of shaping us, molding us, conforming us to the image of the One who is revealed in this book and held high by this book, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ, our all. We pray these things in His blessed and glorious name. Amen. Several years ago, when the girls were in high school, I attended a conference in Washington, D.C. It was kind of a unique conference, and we had rarely traveled to the East Coast, that far north anyway, on the East Coast. And so Regine and I considered that uh, might be an opportunity for us to take the whole family. So I'd go to the conference, and they would go and play and learn. And we're a little bit nerdy about some stuff. We like museums. We like historical sites. And so we thought this might be a great opportunity to take the kids to Washington, D.C. and see some of the great things related to our country's history. And so we landed in Washington, D.C. I headed to a church for a conference. They headed to Union Station, bought their bus passes, and began touring the city. I think they had more fun than I did, in all honesty. I took a break on Saturday afternoon from the conference. The conference, I don't remember, was multiple days long, and we had one window Saturday afternoon that was designed for free time. And so the girls had, and Regine had spent the better part of that week kind of touring through Washington, D.C., making a list of all the places that they wanted to take Dad in that six-hour time frame. So we hurriedly, when I got dismissed, hurriedly made our way to Union Station. I bought the bus pass. We jumped on a bus and we started going places. And I'm one of those guys that when I get to a museum, I read every word on every plaque. Yeah, I'm that guy. And so they took me, I think one of the first stops was the Smithsonian Museum 
and the Air and Space Museum, right? And so I'm walking through and I'm reading every plaque and the girls are pulling on my arm. Dad, Dad, we got to go. We got to go. Look at that. It's cool. But now we got to go. And so they were pulling me through the city at that speed. We paused at a few spots. We paused at the Lincoln Memorial. The size of the monument was actually surprising to me. I was not ready for the size of it and just the emotional power of seeing that monument and thinking about the man that God used in a very profound way in this nation's history to write uh, 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 something that was of great immoral wrong and just a, a significant time. We also stopped at the Vietnam Memorial and the Korean Memorial. My daughter sent me those pictures this week. I couldn't look at that middle picture without crying. And you can hear that in my voice now. The soberness was just overwhelming. You look at the Vietnam Memorial in particular and you just see name after name after name after name after name. And you realize all these died to give their life for this country. It was sobering, hushed, and heavy. All the way through Washington, D.C., there's a, there's a bustle in the city. I mean, it's a large city, and there's lots of activity, and there's lots of noise. And you go to those memorials, and it's hushed, and it's quiet, and it's sober. Memorials are designed to evoke those kinds of emotions. One of the things that memorials are designed to do is to remind us, don't forget this. It's worth remembering. It's not just worth remembering. You must remember. You must hold on. You must not lose. This is way too significant to let it slip, either from your individual memory or the corporate memory of the nation. But those things do diminish, don't they? The busyness of days and years push those memories from our minds and they fade. And because of the frailty of our minds, we are prone to think that God also has the same kind of limitations of memory. Certainly Israel thought that. In one particular instance, after the nation had been in captivity in Babylon and Medo-Persia for 70 years, the nation began returning to the land of Israel. We're going to talk about that this morning And quickly, the foundation for a reconstructed temple was poured. And there was excitement about the reconstruction of the temple and the re-inauguration of the city and all the things that were going to come with being in God's city, Jerusalem. And then opposition arose. And forgetting the promises of God and essentially assuming that God had also forgotten His promises to Israel, the nation became fearful and for 20 years did no work on the temple. And the foundation lay as a testimony to Israel's fear and unbelief. God can't do what He promised to do. And into that forgetfulness, God brought a series of men, including two prophets, to exhort and encourage the Israelites of God's promise, of God's care for His people. One of those prophets is Zechariah, and he's going to be the focus of our attention through the rest of this year and likely into the first part of next year. 
And our goal through this series is to cultivate in ourselves a mindset of confidence, not just in God's power, but to cultivate a confidence in God's remembrance of His promises to care for and act for His people. He has not forgotten. The book of Zechariah will encourage and exhort us to be hopeful because... In His sovereignty, God remembers and God will fulfill His promises to His people. He remembers everything that He has promised and He will act on every one of His promises. It seems quiet. It seems at times as if God is not acting or God has been overwhelmed. Oh, brother and sister, learn from this book God is not quiet. God is not silent. He has not forgotten. He will finish what He promised. David and I were talking just before the service and I said something that I just remembered (laughs) that I think is helpful. It's helpful to remember that this is one of the last books of the Old Testament. It's, in fact, the next to last book. It's the next to last book in your Bible, but chronologically that also happens to be true. And it's as if... God is saying to the nation of Israel as the last thing that they hear before 400 years of silence and the coming of the Messiah, He wants them to hear, I will keep my promises. And that's what we should have ringing in our ears as well. He will remember. He will fulfill. This morning what I want to do is just kind of lay out for you in broad terms the history of the book and then some of the themes and structure of the book and then we'll start looking at it expositionally next Sunday morning. So this morning what I want us to do is consider four keys to understanding the book of Zechariah. This book about God's remembrance, this book about God's activity, this book of God's fulfillment of what is coming and our assurance in that four keys to understanding the book of Zechariah. The first is, we need to understand the historical context of Zechariah. Said most simply, how in the world did Israel get in this predicament? Now, excuse me, Zechariah is writing in the year 520 B.C. So if you are... If you are like me, a date nerd, a history nerd, you're going to be excited about the next 10 or 15 minutes because I'm going to give you a bunch of dates and try and connect some activities to that. Zechariah's writing in 520 B.C. Remember B.C., we're counting backwards, right? So the, old, the bigger numbers are the further away numbers. The smaller numbers are the closer numbers to when Jesus returns. So Zechariah's writing in 520. But the story begins a long time before that. Hundreds of years before that. You may remember that at one time the nation of Israel was one nation. They had been solidified as a nation first under Saul. Then Saul was succeeded by David. And then David succeeded by his son Solomon. And then after Solomon died, the nation was divided into two kingdoms. It's all still Israel, but but there's two kingdoms north and south. And we relate to that from our own history in our own country, right? So there's a north... The United States, the southern part of the United States, and there was division between the two. And that's exactly what was going on in Israel. The northern 
kingdom of Israel was actually known as Israel. So often as you read the Old Testament, um, you're going to... I'm having iPad issues here. Just a moment. There we go. Um, you, as you read the Old Testament, often when you read the word Israel, it's not speaking to all 12 tribes. It's speaking about the 10 northern tribes. And then the southern tribes are identified around two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And those two tribes became known as Judah. So we have Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms of Israel. While the southern tribes had a mixture of some godly kings and ungodly kings, the northern tribe, without exception, perhaps one, maybe possibly slightly difference, all of the kings of the northern tribes were evil. All of them were wicked. All of them were ungodly. None of them pursued after God. And so in the 8th century B.C., late in the 8th century, the Assyrian army was sent by God to attack Israel and those ten tribes, and they were defeated and taken into captivity in Assyria in 722 B.C., so roughly 200 years before Zechariah is writing. While they are in captivity, Judah's experiencing some good kings, some bad kings. Judah's not in captivity yet. And following the good reign of the godly king Hezekiah, there were a series of evil kings, and God warned Judah that she would also be taken into captivity. And we find that in a very striking statement in 2 Kings chapter 20. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, 2 Kings 20, starting in verse 16, and he says, hear the word of the Lord. God speaking, what does God say? God says, verse 17, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. In other words, captivity is coming. You're going to be taken away. And Hezekiah, your direct progeny, are going to be taken away into captivity and serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. And with a measure of delusion, Hezekiah says to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Because he thought, is it not so that there will be peace and truth in my days? In other words, it's okay while I'm alive. It's not happening until after I'm gone. So it's okay. It's good. I don't have to deal with it. How short-sighted he was. And despite the repeated warnings of the coming captivity, the leaders of Judah mocked the prophets who spoke about the coming captivity in Babylon. Says one commentator, The era immediately prior to the fall of Judah reflected an equally fragile peace and prosperity. Into the mix was added a cacophony of voices predicting a glorious future in addition to the harbingers of doom. One major theological, theological problem with social implications in the pre-exilic era, that is, when they were in exile, so before they went into exile, was the doctrine of the inviolability of Zion. In other words, we can't be defeated. And there's this idea. The prophets are saying, God's prophets are saying, you're going to go into captivity. And there were false prophets that saying, who can beat Israel? We're okay. The commentator goes on, there was this false and pernicious doctrine, the, the prosperity theology of that day. And this false teaching affirmed that Jerusalem could never fall as long as the Lord's temple remained in the city. God, God's just a genie. 
And he'll do our bidding. And we can't be defeated. And Jeremiah mocked this false teaching, admonishing, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. In other words, the temple of the Lord can't be defeated. Don't trust that. Because God said, captivity is coming. And despite those obstinate rebels who were suggesting that Judah would not be taken into captivity, God was not inhibited by them. And so in 605 B.C., a little over a hundred years after the captivity of the northern tribes into Assyria, Babylon comes to the southern tribes and takes them into captivity. Babylon, of course, had succeeded Assyria in that location. And they took a number of the best, brightest, and the greatest wealth of Judah into captivity. That's the captivity by which Daniel and his friends went to Babylon. That's 605. That deportation was followed by two subsequent deportations, 605, followed by 597 and 586 B.C. Not every citizen of Judah was taken, but the best, the brightest, the most effective, the best leaders, the most important people, the most financially wealthy, along with all of the riches and treasures of Judah, were taken into captivity. And this Babylonian captivity, Kings tells us, is directly because of Judah's overt rebellion against God. Listen to what it says, 2 Kings chapter 24. I start in verse 2, 2 Kings 24, 2. The Lord sent against him, against Jehoiakim, the last of the ungodly kings of Judah, the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, bands of the Arameans, bands of the Moabites, bands of the Ammonites. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for all of the innocent blood which he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. So Judah was rebellious, disobedient, and God took them into, into captivity as discipline for their rebellion against him. And yet, even... Even at this time, there's a remarkable promise of God given through Jeremiah about the restoration of the nation. So we read this in Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 9. Behold, I will send, God says, and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, And will bring them into this land and against its inhabitants and against all those nations round about. And I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the voice of, excuse me, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And the whole land will be a desolation and a horror. This is, this is God affirming through Jeremiah, this captivity is going to happen. This is what's going to happen, and it's going to be astoundingly horrid. The whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years, 
Verse 12. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares the Lord for their iniquity, their iniquity against God's chosen people and the land of the Chaldeans and I will make it an everlasting desolation. In other words, you're going to go into captivity, but hang on in 70 years, I'll free you. And that gets repeated again in chapter 29 of Jeremiah Chapter 29, verse 10, Thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. That promise that so many evangelicals say, this is about us and God's promise. No, it's a promise about Israel and Judah. That God has not forget, forgotten them. And He will, after the 70 years of captivity, take them back into the land. He knows what He's doing. He knows His plan. He has not forgotten. And so even while Israel is in Babylon and in captivity, they have, they should have in their minds this reminder, God's, God's not finished. This isn't final. God's gonna, God's gonna restore. And He did indeed restore them. They started going back to Israel in 536 BC. So deported in 605, 70 years later, 536, they started making their way back. That happened under Cyrus. Side note, Isaiah 44, written 150 years before Cyrus was on the throne, identifies Cyrus by name as saying that he would be the one that would allow the captives to go back to Israel. Astounding prophecy, Isaiah 44, 28. And you would think, 536, we've been in captivity for 70 years, and there's, there's this massive relief, right? You would think everything's going to be well. And for a brief time it was. Under the ministry of Ezra, they immediately restored the sacrificial system. They laid the foundation for the temple. That's Ezra chapter 3. And those are both good and godly things. They should have done those things. The first thing they did when going back to the land was restoring their worship system. But immediately they faced strong resistance. They became discouraged. And Ezra chapter 4 tells us they abandoned the project of rebuilding the temple. And for 15 years... That temple remained unbuilt. The people were in the land, but the object of their worship, the focus of their worship remained destroyed. The walls of their city were still in ruins, and while they were in the land, they were a despondent people. And so in order to encourage the people to rebuild the temple, God sent two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, in 520 to exhort them to rebuild the temple. That's their role. There's two similar prophets, similar message, one for a short duration, Haggai, and one for a much longer duration, Zechariah, coming with the same message to rebuild the temple. By the time Haggai and Zechariah are writing their prophecies, Cyrus was dead and he had been replaced by Darius. So chapter 1, verse 1, in case you're wondering if I actually knew if the book was actually in my Bible, there it is, Zechariah 1.1. In the eighth month, 
Now the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying. And so Darius is now ruler of not the Babylonian empire. The Babylonians had succeeded the Assyrians and the the Babylonians were succeeded in 538 by the Medo-Persians. And it's the Medo-Persians that allow the Israelites to go back two years later under Cyrus in 536. So Darius is now the king, and this is the area over which he reigns. Now, if you look to the far right of that purple area, you're, you're almost, well, you are in India. So he, was, he went as far as India. Um, he went north of the Caspian Sea. He covered all the way through the far east. If you look at that green line, the far right of the green line, that's Babylonia there. That's that's to the east of the Tigris, which is east of the Euphrates, to give you a little bit of perspective. And then he goes west and all the way north up into Greece and Macedonia. And then he goes far into Egypt and even into Libya in Africa. It's a tremendous territory over which Darius reigns. He is a powerful ruler over a significant kingdom and he ruled with tremendous authority that's that's how israel got in this fix and god sent a man for the predicament they were in and he sent them among others the man zachariah who's zachariah well zachariah is born in babylon he is born to the tribe of levi He is among the first returnees from Babylon, from Medo-Persia, subsequent to Babylon, to go back to the nation of Israel. Be careful when you're reading the Old Testament and you read the word Zechariah, you read the name Zechariah, don't assume it's this Zechariah because there are 31 Zechariahs, 31 different Zechariahs named in the Old Testament. So you've got to be careful when you're sorting all of them out. This particular Zechariah, he identifies himself. We've already seen it in chapter 1, verse 1. He is the son of Berechiah, and he is the son of Edo. Excuse me, Ezra, in chapter 5 of his book, identifies him not as the son of Berechiah. He lists him as the son of Edo. And um, some have suggested, well, here you go. Here's an example of a discrepancy in Scripture. Here's where somebody has made a mistake. There's an error in Scripture. Yet the, the word son, as it's used in the Old Testament, is a very broad meaning. It can mean son directly. So this is the father of that son. He comes directly from him. Or it can be much broader than that in general family categories. And it's used very often of the grandson or great-grandson relationship. And we think that that's very much the way Ezra is using that term there. He is the grandson of Edo. We think probably that Berechiah had a very short life and that Zechariah very quickly assumed his role in the family's history. And that's why Ezra identifies him in that way. It's interesting, Nehemiah mentions also both Edo and Zechariah in Nehemiah chapter 12, and he identifies him as a priest. In fact, he identifies both of them as priests. And so Zechariah is one of those few people in the Old Testament who serves both as a prophet and as a priest. He is identified in chapter 2 as a young man, verse 4. 
the angel speaks to another angel and says to him, Run, speak to that young man, Zechariah, saying, Israel, excuse me, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and the cattle within it. So he identifies himself as a young man. He is very definitely a contemporary of Haggai. We see that his ministry starts in the eighth month of the second year. That's chapter 1, verse 1. Eighth month of the second year of Darius. If you turn back two, maybe three pages in your Bible to Haggai chapter 1, you find that in the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel. So Haggai's ministry starts two months before Zechariah's ministry. Perhaps what the most significant thing about Zechariah, though, is his name. The word Zechariah means God remembers. And it is fitting that both the name and the message of this prophet align with each other. And it's almost as if God positions Zechariah in such a way with this message so that every time the people of Israel looked at the man and said his name and every time they heard him, they heard the same message. God's remembering his promises. He hasn't forgotten. He will fulfill what he has promised. Specifically, God will remember to install his king, the Messiah, on his throne in Israel. That's where we're headed. In all honesty, I don't think I've ever done this before. In all honesty, I'm preaching this entire book simply to get to chapter 14. Chapter 14 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I don't think I've ever read it without weeping. It's a reminder that the king is coming. And whatever we've got going on in this world, the king is going to rule from his throne in Jerusalem and he will not be defeated. And brothers and sisters, we need that confidence. And so you're going to, you're going to have to, quote unquote, put up with 13 chapters of Zechariah to get there. But those 13 chapters build up to that and lay the foundation for God who is faithful to remember His promises. Spurgeon said, and I think this is in your notes, Spurgeon said about God's recollection, He who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting His own children. Oh, brother and sister, if He knows the star's name, He knows your name. And if he knows the star's name, he hasn't forgotten his promise to you. And he'll keep that. So as we think about the historical context of Zechariah, what are some lessons that we can learn from Israel's predicament? At least three lessons that I thought of. One is rebellion against God always brings consequences. That's the story of Israel's history, isn't it? There's always consequences for rebellion against God and pushing against God. We might say it this way. There is no good natural outcome from sin. Sin is always destructive. Sin always leads to bondage. Sin always leads to enslavement. And sin always ultimately leads to discipline from God unless we repent. There are always consequences to sin. And even though God buys our sin, redeems our sin, restores us from our sin, sin is never a good thing. 
Rebellion against God always brings consequences. Secondly, God is also glorified when He redeems sin and sinners. We're going to see this starting today, that there's always a pathway out of sin through repentance and through confession. And God will restore, God will preserve, God will bring back His people. What He did for Israel, He will also do for you and me. One final lesson. God always has His faithful men to lead His people. Here's a people that are despairing, despondent, fearful, anxious, worried in all the wrong kinds of ways. And God sends to them two people to instruct them, to exhort them, to compel them, to lead them back to Him and back to obedience. And you think about that. The nation of Israel has that history, right? Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Elijah and Elisha and Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah. Go through the Hebrews chapter 11 like we just did a few months ago. And the story, the, the chapter there is just filled with God's faithful people who are used by God to preserve. And then you come to the New Testament and you see Peter and Paul and James and John and you come past the New Testament and you see Luther and Calvin and you come to our day And you still see God's faithful people carrying out God's faithful task. God is never without men who are equipped to accomplish His purposes. No matter how desperate the times seem, He always has His man. He's never lost control. And we need to hold on to that. That's the history of Zechariah, the background in which this book is written. What's the purpose? Why does Zechariah write? What's... What's his intention? Well, the purpose of Zechariah is intertwined with Haggai. They're both speaking and they're both writing to urge the people to compel them to finish building the temple that they had started almost 20 years before. So he says, for instance, in chapter 4, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Zechariah 4, 8, now verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And these are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. In other words, we got to finish what Zerubbabel has started 16 years ago. Haggai will say something similar. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says the time has not come. Even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's not time. There's too much opposition. It's too dangerous. We're afraid. It's not time to do it. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet 1.3. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this high lies desolate? Will you build your own house and not the house of the Lord? Let's get it done, Haggai is saying. And both Haggai and Zechariah are speaking to compel them to rebuild the temple. In fact, Zechariah, we're going to see this next week, Zechariah begins with repentance. Chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. In other words, you need to repent of your fear, worry, anxiety, disobedience, apathy, 
and get this done. Don't be rebellious like your forefathers who when they heard the word to repent, they did not repent. You need to repent and rebuild the temple. He also encourages them to rebuild the temple through a reminder of God's promises. He doesn't just say rebuild it, but he motivates them to rebuild it by reminding them of the promises and two specific promises. One, the nations will be put in subjection to God. The nations don't win. And along with that, God will set up his throne and God will rule over Israel and God and Israel will be exalted. Just let me give you a little taste of it. One sixteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. I'm coming, and I will exalt myself in my city. Chapter 8, verse 3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus said the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each man with his staff in his hand because of his age and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. It's not too hard. I'm going to do this. Chapter 10, we saw this as David read earlier. Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain. The Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain. Vegetation in the field to each man. Verse 7. Ephraim will be like a mighty man and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them to gather them together for I have redeemed them and they will be as numerous as they were before. Chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. The nations don't win. Israel does. Verse 9, same chapter. And that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come about Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so they they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. 
The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, etc. I'm going to restore my people. 14. In that day, there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Sun fades away. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that in evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. doesn't matter whether it's a rainy season or a non-rainy season. The waters will flow. Verse 9, And the Lord who will be king over all the earth. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name, the only one. It's just saturated with the nations don't win. And I know it looks desperate out there and I know you're prone to despondency and I know you look at what's going on culturally. He says to Israel, oh, and to us. And I don't want you to forget that the nations don't win. I do, God says. That's the message. So the purpose, the reason for Zechariah's writing is to bring the people to repent for their fear, for their apathy in rebuilding the temple, and to give them hope that God will accomplish all His plans as the King of Israel. Thirdly, I want us to consider the theme of Israel, or excuse me, the theme of Zechariah. The theme is similar to Romans 11 for those of you who were here when we were going through Romans. And it's the reality that God has not forgotten Israel. He has not forgotten His promises to her, though it looks like Israel has been laid aside. Yet Israel yet will be restored. So Paul says in Romans 11 verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel's been hardened, been rebellious, been disobedient, so I can graft in the Gentiles also. That's us. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. This book is all about the faithfulness of God to fulfill His promises to His nation, to bring about the redemption of the nation as His covenanted people. As one writer has said, that message of hope came, quote, at a time when the situation in Judah could hardly have appeared worse. The situation was bleak, but from God's perspective, it was bright. Everything was happening exactly as he wanted. He would sovereignly remove Israel's oppressors. He would sovereignly build and rule in his temple in Jerusalem. And he would fulfill all of his promises finally. One writer calls Zechariah the prophet of hope and encouragement in troublesome times. Sound like any other times you know about? That's why we need this book. He's the prophet of hope and encouragement in troublesome times. How are we going to summarize the theme of Zechariah? Simply this way. 
in His sovereignty, God remembers and will fulfill His promises to His people. He's sovereign. He's not forgotten. He's wise. He's good. He's powerful. He remembers. He will bring about all His promises to His people just as He promised. What's the message of Zechariah? Last thing I want us to consider this morning. What does Zechariah talk about? Lots of different themes we can talk about and we'll unpack them as we make our way through the book. But I want to draw your attention to three particularly this morning. Zechariah is eschatological. I'm going to give you three big words. Eschatological. Eschatos is the word for end. So eschatology is the doctrine about the end. How does it play out? How does God finish? And we find all kinds of things that Zechariah promises about the end of history and the end of time. For instance, in chapter 2, verse 11, we find the promise of the salvation of the Gentiles. Not just Israel will be saved, but Gentiles also, which is us. And so he says in 2.11, Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people, God says. And then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So God, in addition to redeeming his people, Israel is also redeeming other people alongside Israel. And that's a promise for us as well. Chapter 3, verse 10. He speaks about the millennial kingdom and the coming of that thousand-year reign of Christ in Israel. In that day, declares of Lord, the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree, speaking about the blessing of the millennial kingdom under the Messiah. Chapter 9, among others, verse 16, tells us about the final salvation of Israel and Judah, a, a final salvation that moves beyond just the restoration of Israel from Babylon, from Medo-Persia, and back to the land of Israel in 520 B.C. Excuse me, 916. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they are the stones of a crown sparkling in His land. There's a day coming, a final day, that day, in which God will save and preserve His people. And then, of course, finally, there is the victory of the Messiah Chapter 14, verse 3, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights on the day of battle. And in that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half will move toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. God wins. God wins. Christ is victorious. Now, brothers... It's supposed to give us hope and confidence. Whenever we read eschatology, it's not about setting days and times. Nobody knows. Even Christ in His humanity on earth didn't know the day or the time. We don't know. That's not why we read it. We read it to gain hope. 
That's what Peter tells us, Second Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements with intense heat. But according to His promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're confident it's coming. And that's what all eschatology ought to do, and that's what this book ought to do, is to drive us to confidence that God will fill His promises. So Zechariah is eschatological. Zechariah is soteriological. That is, it is about our salvation. Even from the first part of this book, chapter 1, verse 3, we find the promise of salvation, the hope, the expectation, the offer of salvation. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you. You come to me in repentance, so that I may come to you in restoration and bring you back to myself. And we find that played out all the way through this book. Chapter 5, we have a picture of the removal of sin in the vision of the pots in chapters, chapter 5, verses 5 to 11. We have in chapter 9, the anticipation of Christ coming in salvation. Verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble, mounted on a donkey. Now, they didn't understand everything about that prophecy when it was made, but the disciples sure did when they saw Jesus Christ riding in that donkey into Jerusalem. The King is coming with salvation. And again, we find the ultimate restoration, the ultimate salvation of the people of Israel. Chapter 10, verse 6. I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I had compassion on them. And they will be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God. And I will answer them. Salvation's coming. And the prophet is reminding the readers that there is something worse than suffering now. There is something worse than enduring hardship now. There's something worse than living in a perverse culture. And the worse is missing out on the final salvation that comes through Christ. There's a Messiah coming and He will save and He will bring His people. Don't miss that. The prophet is exhorting them. And we do well to hear the same thing as well. So Zechariah is soteriological. Finally, Zechariah is messianic. Messianic. It's all about the Messiah. One commentator calls this the most messianic, the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings in the Old Testament. One Greek New Testament recognizes 41 quotations from this brief book in the New Testament. 41 times the New Testament writers came to this book for instruction about what they were teaching. In fact, as you think about the passion account of Jesus Christ when He was crucified, chapters 9 to 14 are the most quoted passage in the Old Testament about the passion, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So because of the importance of the book of Revelation, of, of this book as a revelation of the Messiah, one commentator has said, 
One of the great ironies concerning the book of Zechariah is its relative obscurity to the modern church contrasted with its profound significance to the early church. Unfortunately, he says, students of the Bible rarely study Zechariah today. And we miss this beautiful picture of the Messiah who came not only as the Savior of Israel, but also comes as the Savior of all mankind, Savior of us as well. What does this book reveal about the Messiah? Well, it's going to take us a few months to unpack it. Let me just draw your attention to a few things. He is the Messiah, the Lord's servant, the branch. Chapter 3, verse 8. Listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, when they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, that is my ultimate servant, the branch. The one who will become the root out of which will flow Israel. He comes not only as the branch, he comes, chapter 6, verse 13, as the priest. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. Peace comes through his sovereign reigning as king and priest. That's the Messiah. He's the priest who is the king. One of the themes of this book, as I mentioned last week, is the failure of the priesthood and the leaders of Israel to provide shepherding for the nation. We saw that even in chapter 10 as David read it earlier this morning. And here is the one who is coming as the true king and the true shepherd of the sheep. Thus says the Lord my God, chapter 11, verse 4, pasture the flock gloomed, excuse me, doomed to slaughter. So there's coming one who will pasture, who will shepherd who will care for the people of Israel. We see that starting in verse 4 all the way through verse 11. We also see the Messiah coming as one who will be crucified. Chapter 12, verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly for him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. They will grieve because they crucify him. He is coming as the shepherd. He is coming as the king. He is coming as the priest, and they will have killed him on the cross. This book reveals to us the sufferings of Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, And against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So the shepherd comes and he is struck on behalf of those who will become his sheep. And then, of course, we have the great chapter 14, his advent, his coming in glory his exaltation, his position as king over all the earth, chapter 14, verse 9, and the establishment of eternal peace and prosperity. We see that in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even a 
a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. It's all his. As great as the kingdom is under Darius, as the nation is returning to the land, his kingdom will be greater. It will cover all the earth. We come to this book, brothers and sisters, anticipating a future, trusting in the provision of God, looking to our Savior. There are memorials in our lives. And those memorials are designed to make us look at the past. They're helpful. We don't want to forget. We dare not forget. But sometimes our memorials also provoke us to regret. I'm sure there are many people that have stood at that memorial in Washington, D.C. and said, if only. If only my son had been a little bit older. If only... If only my father had taken his right not to go if he had such a position. If only there had been different leadership in the country. If only the president had made this decision. If only Congress had made that decision. And we come to that wall and we're filled with regret. Zechariah is a reminder that as we look to the past, there's no regret for the people of God. God's always in control. God's always ruling. God's always reigning exactly as He wishes. And we look at the past and it drives us to look to the future in faith that God will accomplish. He has not forgotten God has not become incapable. God remembers and God will fulfill His promises to His people. Father, we thank You for these reminders. We need them. We need to be reminded because like Haggai, like Zechariah, we live in perverse times. At least in the nation of this history, perhaps the church has never been under such opposition as it faces now. While people have always been against you and against Christ, there has been, in at least our nation's history, a cultural acceptance of some things about God. And in our generation, that is changing so drastically. And we are prone to discouragement. We're prone to despondency. We're prone to complaining. We're prone to bitterness. Oh, Father, help us to be prone to remember. To remember that you remember your promises. That you have not failed. And you will bring about the exact end that you would have for your people and for us. And might we be confident, might we become steadfast, immovable, hoping, believing, trusting that you are good 
And you will not, affa- you will not fail to bring about everything that you have promised. We pray that because of Christ and in the name of Christ. Amen.